Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. If I don't know you, my name is Mac Harris, and I work in the youth group here at Hope, and so it's really good to look out and see some youthful faces here this morning. Um, I'm excited this morning to continue working through our uh, sermon series on the life of Moses and looking at Exodus and seeing some of the surprising things that we may not know about Moses and also the surprising ways that God works in the world. And so before we dive in any further, would you pray with and for me this morning? Um, Father God, you know our hearts as we come to you this morning, and for a lot of us, this has been a heavy and a hard week. It's been an exhausting week, and sometimes it's hard for us to believe the words that we sing or the the words that we hear in Scripture, and we just ask that you would help us to believe those this morning, that you would meet us in our distractedness and our busyness, and that you would recenter us on you. Fill us with your Spirit and point us to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, a long, long, long time ago, way back when I was in high school, um, I remember bringing my best friend to church one day, and it was really a normal day at church. Um, we went to Sunday school, and then we had our worship service, and the, the, the sermon was going along just very, very normal, nothing memorable. And then about midway through the sermon, the pastor started to get a little flustered. His name was Dr. Barnett, and he started to shake a little bit. His words became a little choppier, and he, he asked first for a glass of water. He drank some water and then tried to keep preaching, but he was still visibly flustered. Something was physically wrong. And so he ended up sitting down and preached the rest of the sermon sitting down, but he ended it short, ended it quickly, and then kind of rushed out, and, and no one really talked to him afterwards, and so everybody was a little confused as to what had happened. The next Sunday, Dr. Barnett was, was back to preaching like normal, and no one really knew what had happened, but he thanked us for our concern and for, for asking and praying about him and, and said everything was just all right. But after about a month, he... Um, took a, a moment of, of vulnerability and real just raw courage, really, to open up to the whole congregation after a sermon. And so our pastor, Dr. Barnett, who not only preached every Sunday at our church for as long as anyone could remember, but who also was a college professor who taught preaching classes for a living. So this man was as good of a public speaker as, as there came, and he admitted to us that in the middle of his sermon that he'd suffered from a panic attack. But what was most surprising wasn't just that he'd suffered from a panic attack and that anxiety had attacked him like it never had before, but it was his admission that every Sunday after that, Dr. Barnett continued to feel the same fear that he'd never felt in his life. He walked up the stairs to preach and he would fear that, that uh, the fear that the anxiety was constricting him would, would, gr- would take hold of him as he was walking up the stairs that anxiety, the, the feeling that he was losing control of his mind and of his body and of his words. Not just the thing that he was paid to do, but the thing that God had gifted him at so well, the thing that he'd done his entire life in the name of Jesus. And he felt like he had lost that. He was tempted to feel ashamed or to want to hide from his weaknesses, but God was delighted for him to walk deeper into dependence and to need him in those moments like he never had before. In our passage today, Moses is, is peeling back the curtain himself and opening, up, opening us up to the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses that he had in his own walk with the Lord. It's a bit of a strange passage here in, in Exodus chapter 4, but it's one that gives us permission to ask questions, to wrestle with God, and to doubt, and to have questions when we are confused as to what is going on in our lives and what he's doing with our weaknesses. 
But before we get in too deep, I want to just catch us up real quickly and, and set the stage because last week, Matt Guzzi preached on Exodus chapter 3, which is the famous burning bush passage where God calls to Moses out of a burning bush and calls him to come and lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But if we remember, right, Moses in our head is this great biblical hero, but when we look closer at, at the actual story, the Moses of real life was a murderer, he was an exile. His face was on the wanted posters plastered all over Egypt, and even his fellow Israelites wanted nothing to do with him. He'd lived for 40 years as a prince in Egypt, and then 40 more years as an exile in a faraway land. And I'm told to be, to be sure that 40 years is not that old. It's not a very long time. But 40 plus 40 is a whole, whole nother ball game. Right, so he's no spring chicken, and he's no hero returning with an army, but he's a shepherd with a staff. And maybe even most surprisingly to us is that Moses doesn't seem to be that pious or that obedient to God in this time, right? This isn't 40 years in the wilderness of Moses having really great quiet times with the Lord, but it's 40 years of him kind of slowly drifting away, it seems, and not leading his family in ways to walk with God. And then when God meets him, he's brimming with doubts. So Moses is no theological superstar. He's no moral superhero. He's no charismatic and confident leader that we would expect to lead a nation. But as is so often the case in the Bible, God isn't calling the brightest or the bravest or the best behaved, but he's calling someone who's aggressively, who's terribly ordinary. And after this initial shock of the burning bush encounter, Moses asks God two questions in chapter three. He says, God, who am I to do this? And then he says, who are you to do this? We talked about those a little bit last week, and here in chapter four, the beginning of our passage, Moses asks a third question. In verse one, he says, well, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. And the Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had become again, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So Moses' objection here is, is really an understandable one, right? If we put ourselves into his sandals, it's understandable for him to ask, well, what about the Israelites, right? What if they don't believe me? It's been 40 years since Moses has been home, so no one knows who he is anymore. And even more than that, there's no witnesses around for him to, to corroborate his story, right? Moses can't just show up out of nowhere and talk about how God spoke to him out of a burning bush and told him to save them from slavery in Egypt, right? He's going to sound a little crazy if he does that. And even, to be fair to, to God's promises, in chapter 3, God had promised Moses that Israel will listen to you. He said in, verse, in chapter 3, 18, that they will listen to what you say, 
And then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. But even though God has promised that Israel will listen, his response to Moses' doubt is maybe surprising. He doesn't knock Moses for forgetting a promise of 30 seconds ago, but he greets him gently, and he greets him with a question. In verse 1, Moses says, but God, what if they don't believe me? What if they think I'm crazy? And in verse 2, God says, what is that in your hand? There's no scolding. There's just patience. And every time in our passage today that Moses questions God, God responds with his own question. It kind of reminds us a little bit of the, of the way that God interacted with Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned, right? Adam, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They felt their nakedness and their shame. And so they were afraid and they hid away from God. But instead of sending a, a bolt of lightning or a judgment booming from heaven to strike them down, God walked through the garden and he called out to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? And really all throughout scripture, we see a God who in the middle of our failures, in the middle of our doubts, of our weaknesses, he's always moving towards us. In chapter three, he promised Moses his presence. And now the stubborn hearts, and now knowing the stubborn hearts of Moses and of all of Israel, he demonstrates the power of that presence with these three strange signs. First, he turns a staff into a snake. Second, he withers or diseases or maybe even gives Moses leprosy on his hand. And then third, the water of the Nile River, he promises will be turned to blood. We don't have time to to talk about all of these in detail quite yet, but God is dropping breadcrumbs of, of an immediate and of greater promises for Israel. He's in absolute control of nature, of human beings, of the entire world. and He's willing to encourage Moses in his doubts with signs of his power. I think if we're not careful, we can miss something really special here because whenever we are approached by someone who is doubting or who has questions or has a, a stressful situation coming up, right? A kid has a test or a friend has a job interview, we, we encourage them by telling them, hey, you, you've got this, right? You can do it. You're so smart. You studied so hard. You're going to do so great, right? But that's not, that's not how God treats Moses at all. He says, Moses, I know what I've called you into and I know that you can't do it on your own, but I've got this. And it's one thing for us to, to read this and say, well, that's how God dealt with Moses. And another thing for us to say, well, what about me, right? God hasn't spoken to me in a burning bush, and I don't have a staff that turns into a snake to prove that God is who he says he is. But each of us is called by God to various purposes in our lives. As a youth team, we're reading through a book called Leading with a Limp, which is written by a guy named Dan Allender, who's a counselor, and it's, it's all about uh, Christian leadership, and he talks about it like this. He says that anyone who wrestles with an uncertain future on behalf of others, anyone who uses her gifts, talents, and skills to influence the direction of others for the greater good is a leader. No one is a mere follower. If you are a follower of God, for instance, then you are called to lead. Every believer is called to help someone grow into maturity And such is the core calling of a leader. And if that definition sounds frustratingly broad, then that's the point, right? No matter how young or how old you are here today, God has called you to be a leader. Allender explores this a little more, and he he says that a leader is anyone who is moved to influence others to engage a problem or an opportunity for good. If we are being followed by someone who looks to us for wisdom or direction, 
perspective or a decision, then we must embrace our calling and lead. This means that all parenting is leadership. This means that making a decision at work is leadership. That volunteering in children's church or helping your siblings with their homework or even deciding with your friends where you want to hang out on a Friday night. All of those are ways that God has called you to lead, ways that you are already leading in God's kingdom every single day. Right? Big or small, we can't hide from God's call to be leaders at home, at school, on our teams, at work, in our church, in our community groups, wherever it is. And passages like this remind us that not only are we called to lead, but that God allows us to have doubts about our ability to lead and doubts about even his ability to take care of us while we lead. Right? We may not have the, the burning bush experience of Moses, but all of us either will or have experienced his second guessing, right? The, are you sure about this, God? Do you really want me to do this? But what if I, what if I fail? What if nobody listens to me? What if I just look like an idiot up there? But there's no second guessing, and there's no self-doubt that's too big for God. And really, this is what he wants from his people. He wants us to wrestle with him because it gives him an opportunity to show us who he is. One of the commentators that I read um, in preparation for this put it like this. He said that Moses' questions, which are really challenges to God, serve to draw out more concretely the nature of God's continued presence with Moses and the manner in which his power will be displayed to Egypt. Those concerns provide a vehicle for God to reveal himself. For Moses and for us, God is in the business of calling the unqualified, calling everyday people, to do things that are well beyond our abilities to take care of on our own, because that's how he proves that he is who he says he is. That's how he shows up for us. Paul, Paul David Tripp describes it like this. He says that embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle that we must not miss. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. So first, God uses ordinary people like Moses, like you and like me, to do everyday things and to do big, impossible, extraordinary things. And all along he promises that he will be with us and that his power is with us all the way. We're never on our own. But at the same time, God isn't calling Moses to just be a puppet, right? He, he, this isn't a, with all due respect to Carrie Underwood, this isn't a let go and let Jesus take the wheel kind of moment, right? Moses is still gonna have to do hard things that he doesn't want to do. And really, there's this tension in the heart of the Christian walk, that God comforts us with his presence, with the Holy Spirit making its home inside of us, and at the same time, he stretches us out beyond our comfort zone and calls us to things that we may not want to do. And that's exactly where Moses finds himself in our passage, and this leads to objection number two. If you look at me in in verse 10, Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently since, you've been, you, since you have been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. And the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a, mute, a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. This time Moses' objection is about himself. He says, God, you know I don't speak very well. And we don't know if this is actually a a physical speech impediment that Moses had, or maybe it was a psychological hindrance that he he didn't like speaking, or maybe he just 
was really self-conscious about the way that his voice sounded or the way that um, speaking in public was for him. The point was is that Moses had no confidence in his ability to speak publicly or to convince an entire nation to follow him. And even more than that, this is 80 years of an insecurity, right, built up in God saying, hey, that thing that you're afraid of, that thing that you are, um, that you least like about yourself, that's what I'm calling you to use to do what I want you to do. If we're in God's shoes, if we were trying to handpick a leader to, to save Israel and lead them out of slavery, we'd probably pick someone young and handsome, right, someone charismatic with a lot of, a lot of charm and someone who could work a crowd, who could win an argument, and Moses isn't any of those things. He's not just the unlikely choice, but he's a foolish choice, it seems. And just as before, God meets Moses' concerns by pointing to himself. He doesn't demand that Moses have this radical transformation like we see in the king's speech or that he work harder, but he's asking for Moses to simply trust him. He knows just how self-conscious Moses was about his speaking ability, and that's exactly why he chose Moses for the job. He was calling Moses to step out on the ledge beyond the safety net of his own abilities and trust him. Dan Allender talks about this aspect of, of leadership and God's call like this. He says that even worse, after moments of glory, God generally tells us to engage in a difficulty that is impossible to handle at our level of maturity and faith. Glory casts us not into ease, but into the arms of a relentless God who desires for us to know even greater glory. So just as he reminded Moses of the promise of his power and his nearness, God was also pushing Moses out towards, pushing Moses out not into this ease, but into the arms of a relentless God who desires that you would know an even greater glory, the glory of his deliverance, not our own. Of course, this is a lot easier said than done, and it's definitely easier to tell someone else that, hey, God's going to use your weakness for good in your life, but he's not going to use mine. He's only going to focus on my strengths. A few years ago, I remember sitting um, at the original Pancake House, which is a great spot, with Matt Hamm, and uh, trying to think through a call to ministry and maybe going to seminary, and we'd met a couple times before, but I was still very intimidated by Matt, like, you know, muscles, and also just, if you sit across from him with uh, a whole giant plate of those egg white omelets, it's just a mountain of food, and it's intimidating, it is. Um, a little emasculating, you're like, man, I'm a nobody. <laughs> but, it's beside the point, um, I was talking to him about my reservations about really myself, and, and, and saying that I don't know if, if I would be a good pastor one day because I'm really introverted, and I tend to be quiet. I talked about how I liked doing youth ministry because um, I really loved hanging out with kids, but I also was afraid of adults, right? It's terrifying um, to talk to adults. And yeah, here we are. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I, I lack the, the charisma and some of the, just the natural speaking gifts that a lot of pastors that I knew had. And this doesn't mean that introversion is a weakness. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we talked about how ministry involves both God calling you into your strengths and the, the gifts that he's given you, and also the ways that God calls you out on the ledge, and that God uses your weakness as a way to, to depend on him more than ever, learning to trust him with those weaknesses. And we talked about how ministry requires you to do things that I wasn't going to be comfortable with maybe ever, or maybe just for a small amount of time. 
And that doesn't mean that I should ignore the call. Yeah, so here we are, a room full of adults, heart rate of 150, lots of sweat going everywhere. That's just the way it works sometimes. But the point is, is, is to say that even when God is with us, when his presence and his power are upon us, he still pushes us out beyond what is comfortable. And really, this is the pattern in all of the Bible. Paul talks about this in his second letter to the Corinthians. And Paul, just for a, a little backstory, um, not just one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all time, not just someone who wrote a lot of the New Testament, but he's someone who his critics uh, regularly told him that he was a bad preacher and that he didn't speak well in public, which is kind of hard for us to believe. But Paul was a bad public speaker. Not only that, but he also suffered from some kind of physical bodily ailment, and he talks about this a couple different times as his thorn in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, he says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness." It was a painful lesson for Paul to relearn again each and every day, but he was beginning to understand that his inadequacy was not a hindrance to God's work, but really a gateway for grace to come through. Earlier in his letter, Paul talks a little bit about this a little bit more, and he talks about why God loves to use broken and fragile and weak human beings to achieve his greatest purposes. In chapter four, he says this, he says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. This treasure that he's talking about is the gospel, the power of of resurrection life and forgiveness of sins for those who believe in Jesus. And those clay jars are you and me, right? Broken yet beautiful, functioning and fragile human beings. And why does God store this priceless treasure in human beings, and something so fragile, and something that messes up and breaks all the time, right? Why does he choose little old Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, and why does he call you to do something that you feel totally incapable of doing? It's all so that his extraordinary power would be on full display. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song called um, Broken Vessels, and it's a, it's a beautiful song, and there's a verse in it that says this. It says, you take our failure you take our weakness, you set your treasure in jars of clay. And as we sing that, I I would just love for us to be reflecting on what are the ways that God is taking my failure and my weakness? What are the insecurities and the fears that he might be using and he might be calling me to go deeper into instead of running away from? Because we, from such a young age, we learn to lean into our strengths and to run away from our weaknesses. Maybe to try to conquer our weaknesses or cover them up, hide them away from the world. Right, if you, if you um, are applying to college or trying out for a team or, tr- or applying for a job, whatever it might be, we all try to build the right resume and minimize and hide the things that we're not as good at. But that's not the way that God works at all because the world wants you to be flawless and God just says, I want you to be faithful. Right, the very things that disqualify us in the eyes of the world are the exact qualifications that God is looking for in his kingdom. He doesn't want superheroes, he wants jars of clay. And I love the way that one author talks about this when he calls this God's clay pot conspiracy. He says it like this. He says, God's strategy is different. God stores his treasure in something common and breakable. 
We think our battle with anxiety makes us less effective to lead. We assume our bodily illness or our prodigal child means the end of usefulness for God. But beneath your pain, there is a plan, the clay pot conspiracy. God is working to make your life speak in ways you never imagined. How? God stores his treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. So on the one hand, we're comforted by God's presence, and at the same time, we're discomforted by the call that he gives to us to pull us and stretch us out of our comfort zones, pull us deeper into our weaknesses and our insecurities. So where does this leave us today, right? Where does this leave Moses as he's living in this tension? We see his, his response, this final objection that he raises is really more of, um, of, of a toddler's temper tantrum than a a reasoned out question to God. And in verse 13, Moses says this. He says, please, Lord, send someone else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. And I will help you both. I will help both you and him to speak and teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you, he will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve, God, serve as God to him. And take the staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. In other words, Moses has no more excuses, right? He's all out. He just doesn't want to do it anymore. And he's stamping his, his bare feet on that holy ground and saying, God, please send someone else. And just three quick things about the way that God responds. First, what God doesn't do to Moses God, God is angry with Moses and his continued unbelief, but even in that anger, he doesn't cast Moses aside. He's chosen Moses, warts and all, and he doesn't, he's not going to dump Moses on the side of the road for a, more, for a more talented or more confident leader. There's also something else that God doesn't do, and it's maybe even more surprising, right? God, God tells us that he made mouths, he makes people speak, he makes people to hear, but he doesn't heal Moses, even though he could, right? He could promised to make the stutter go away. He could promise to make Moses more confident or more capable as a public speaker, and he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with your mouth, but he doesn't promise to make it all better, right? Moses' weakness and his insecurities will continue to force him to humbly depend upon God every time he opens his mouth. Secondly, even in his anger, God is merciful, and he isn't surprised at Moses. He knows what we need before we even ask it, and he's already sent back up. He's already sent Aaron to come to Moses. He doesn't leave this self-doubting shepherd on his own, but instead he provides a partner in crime. He provides him community to go about this leadership burden. Aaron isn't just a brother and a friend, but he's a gifted speaker because God knows exactly the weakness that Moses needs help with. And then lastly, looking at the passage as a whole, we, kept glimpse, we catch glimpses of God's big picture, future provision for Moses and for Israel and for all of us. As I mentioned earlier, each of these three signs has a, a present significance to Moses and Israel and also a future significance. First of all, the, the snake, which is one of the, the national symbols of the Egyptian empire, right? The most powerful country in the world um, was symbolized by a snake, by a cobra, and so when God turns Moses' staff into a snake and then tells Moses to grab the snake by the tail, he's, he's foreshadowing this unlikely deliverance that God is going to perform 
through Moses and over Egypt. Also, I should just say for all you teenage boys, this is not an endorsement to grab snakes. Definitely don't grab them by the tail. Let's stay, let's stay away from that. Um, but even more than just the snake representing Egypt, um, whenever we see a snake in the Bible, our ears should prick up a little bit. Right? There's a snake in the very beginning of the Bible story, and there's a snake at the very end of Revelation. And Moses wrote the book of Exodus. He wrote this story, this account of him and God. And he also wrote the book of Genesis. And he recorded the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall happened and as he's talking to the serpent. And God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So as God is laying down judgment in the aftermath of the fall, he makes this beautiful prophecy. He says, there's going to be a war. There's going to be hostility between the serpent and Eve's offspring, between Satan and God's people. But in this very first gospel promise, in the third chapter of the Bible, God points to a deliverer who will save his people once and for all from the serpent. In our passage today, God is promising some kind of deliverance from some kind of serpent, right? But at at the same time, Moses reminds This passage reminds Moses, and it will ultimately remind the rest of Israel, every time they go back and reread this passage of the greater promise of God's, of his greater deliverance, not just to crush, not just to grab the serpent's tail and to control it briefly, but to crush crush his head forever. Moses would eventually help lead Israel out of Egypt, spoiler, but he couldn't destroy the serpent forever. Right, that deliverance would come generations later when Jesus the Messiah would hang on a cross. Israel's final savior, this greater Moses, would, all, would also t- reach out and touch lepers by the hand. A river of his blood would run red and atone for the sins of his people. And this greater Moses wouldn't just grab a snake by the tail, but he would crush its head when he rose from the grave. In a few minutes, we're gonna take communion and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for his people, the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled. And as we think about this um, ordinance that he gave on the last night of his life, we can also think about um, the prayer that he prayed on the last night of his life. As he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says something remarkably similar to what Moses says in our passage. Matthew's Gospel records it like this. Chapter 26, he says, that going a little further, Jesus fell face down and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. God the Father was calling God the Son somewhere truly unimaginable into pain and brokenness that was never even foreseen. Jesus knew what lay ahead, and he still went willingly. He humbly submitted himself to weakness and to death and to death on a cross. So when we look to God for signs of his presence and his power today, he points us to the cross. He points us to the promise of what he has already accomplished on your behalf. When the Son of God became weak so that we would be made strong. As we think about his weakness exposed on the cross there, we think about your weakness and my weakness and Moses' weakness, none of these are disqualifying in God's eyes, but it's always a reminder that God stores up his treasure in beautiful, broken jars of clay. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, help us to believe that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves, the things that we're good at and the things that we are not good at. And um, help us to cast our cares and our concerns and our weaknesses upon you. Help us to trust that you are near us, that you are good and you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.